Welcome to Tough Talk. Tough Talk was created to have challenging conversations across industries such as mining, oil and gas, renewables. We'll talk hydrogen, we'll talk hydropower, we'll talk offshore wind. You name it, nothing's off the table. Welcome to Tough Talk. This Tough Talk with Jody Rowe episode is brought to you by Powered. Powered helps service sector companies sell their products and services into the Australian energy industry. In the fast-paced world of Australian energy, the competition can be fierce. It can be a struggle to get your products and services the attention they deserve. That's where Powered steps in. With Powered on your team, you'll not only be able to amplify your sales, but also to accelerate growth in the Australian energy sector. Their expertise lies in creating and executing strategic sales plans that align perfectly with your unique business goals. So if you're ready to propel your business to new heights in the energy industry, there's no time like the present to reach out to Powered. Trust me, they are the game-changing boost that your business needs. So welcome to Tough Talk. We're continuing our conversation today with Ian Coxon, who's the Chief Financial Officer of Globalec. We've talked, Ian, about a whole range of subjects. And I'm fascinated about working in Africa. I've never done it myself. I've been to South Africa, to Sun City to play golf. What are the types of challenges that, you know, that that you guys experience in dealing with Africa? Right. What a what a question, Jody. So thanks uh, thanks for that one, and nice to be back. You know, Africa. Obviously, I think there's two layers to those. One, we are in a projects business, so at a baseline of finding the right project, putting the pieces together, moving that through construction and operations. You know, a lot of those will be very familiar to other locations around the world. You know, you've got the challenges of, you know, working with the landowners where you try and find the site, working with local communities who will have certain needs and differing needs. You've got to then get the financing together. So who's going to, you know, support you on the economic case you've got to to build the project through. So, you know, I'll try and move beyond what many people in listening to your podcast with you know are familiar with on classic sort of difficulties you have on a on a project and yeah. try and touch a bit more on maybe some of the ones in 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 Africa. And I I think the the starting point, you know, Africa is very difficult to work in. It is, you know, the time it takes us to typically close a project is uh, far longer than elsewhere around the world. And and it's for many of the reasons you hear, you know, on the TV or the news. If you think around countries, quite often the, you know, if you talk from the state side, you know, you've got legislation, which is not necessarily very well advanced. So things like a solar plant or a wind farm, and we talked in the first episode about Mozambique, there are no wind farms in Mozambique. So we have to ensure that there is, you know, the right legislation in place that we can make that work for the state and ourselves to go and build uh, a power plant in that space. So sometimes you're on the frontier of working with a country to try and move forward to the right uh, legal framework that it actually helps you to move forward and uh, if you start at the, the base of you know finding the land sometimes the land titles aren't clear who actually owns the land is it clear is it used from a uh, you know an, an informal perspective from a local community but then there's not actually a legal use to that so you have to work very closely with the local communities to understand you know the the the, the nature of the use of that land, 
what are the you know the uh, customary uses of that and so we do you know and, and we haven't touched on ESG but you know we have a lot around that sustainability and environmental team who work very closely to try and get the sense that you're working with the community to work in that area where you want to build build the plant because it, you know that's first and foremost you can see in Africa you know we have cyclones going through we had one plant where we've had to redesign the plant after a one in a hundred year flood the cyclone Aida who came through eastern Africa uh, and when we looked at the topography we had of the land half of it would be underwater now it hadn't been for a hundred years but that cyclone had driven that through and, and so you've got all those issues which are around making sure you've got a robust site that you can actually build a plant on and you've worked with the community to try and bring that forwards then you have to say right you may be in quite an isolated area and so what is the transmission the connectivity, where's the nearest transmission station, which the state may or may not have capacity for you to build on. And so you've sort of got to then get the, the technical side of, we'd like Plan X, how are we going to build the transmission lines in, how are we going to get that to, to market through our through our off-taker? So that's the technical side. And to some extent, maybe that's an easier part because it's, it's a known piece of technology to work through. You have all the pieces of permitting. And so the layers of government, which we're all familiar with around the world, where you'd have, you know, local council, state, elders or tribal elders, perhaps to, to government. And so those working the layers through on permitting and approvals, you always need to make sure that you're following that very much through the rigours of the law. And, uh, and so that can, can take quite a long time. And so I, I think it's when we're known for being a patient organisation. So we do things the right way every time so i think that means that you know you've, you've got certainty and surety as you bring that through and a huge advantage we also have for maybe some of the concerns you have around africa as i said earlier we very much finance with um, intergovernmental institutions so you know the world banks in the background ifc other developmental agencies and so they have exceptionally high standards on the community engagement following the law you know, having clear transparency on the cost and the returns of the project. And so that's very much front and centre with the lenders we use to, to really help provide the, the, the fundamental finance for the projects to move forward. At, a, at an EPC level, when you're actually building the contract, we're building the, building the plant, you know, we are very cautious around what subcontractors are used. That's another yeah. area you try to empower local staff where it's a very classic scenario you, you'll be familiar with yourself you know you might have a lot of staff on site a lot of a lot of contractors on site when you're building but actually as you move through into operations the footprint and employment opportunities are you know quite often a lot lower than you had during the construction phase and uh, even less so on something like a renewables like a solar plant where you know the actual you know employees you have are very few uh, for the size of the plant you may have and there's some there's the people who you know maintain the clean the panels and cut the grass and maintain security. So there's a lot of other local employment, but again, the footprint of that is a lot smaller than, you know, you go into a community and they see all these people coming on to build a plant and you've got to make ensure that you're really managing expectations locally in terms of what the employment is beyond sort of the construction phase. So you've, you've got to be quite cautious with those. I mean, the last few years, you know, COVID was, you know, I'm trying to think of the right phrase, you know, just a juggernaut which went through many of our projects while you're in construction. And I think that was across the world. So that certainly hit us on some of the things we were constructing. You know, the EPC contract couldn't be on site and we couldn't be on site. And people had to leave. So, you know, we, we certainly went through that journey. I think particularly the Ukraine war more recently has very much impacted uh, Africa from a couple of factors. 
and you, you may you may be aware, you know, elsewhere we're quite insulated from some of the fluctuations in things like foreign exchange or inflation. But if you look at certain countries who import a lot of grain from Ukraine, you know, Egypt's a good example at the moment. You know, they have very large importation of that for bread and wheat. And so places like Egypt are very much prioritizing food and medicines for any foreign currency because you know inflation's driven that up, their availability of that, and the price has gone through the roof. So they've had to really prioritize that. So therefore, if you're now in a separate environment on providing electricity or otherwise, hard currency becomes harder to come by. You need that hard currency to pay your EPC contractor or maintain uh, you know, debt payments, et cetera. So certain countries in Africa have been really hit by both those factors. And you've just got to, you know, as it were, expect the unexpected in terms of some of the challenges you have around that. So, yeah. you know, you've got bureaucracy, which we see everywhere around the world. Certain places are, are better than others. But it really, it really depends country by country within within Africa, and certain are in a, a different space to, to to other parts. But you know, each of those stages, it's really what you see elsewhere on a project. But there's normally five or six other things which come uh, on on top of that. And maybe the last one from there, you see, you know, it's very unfortunate in sub-Saharan Africa at the moment. There's been quite a few coups. So Mali was, I think, what six to eight weeks ago. We had Gabon, uh, which went through a coup about three weeks ago. So you've got you know, forced changes of government, the different dynamics that brings into, you know, who is the Minister of Energy you now talk to? Who's the Minister of Finance? Are they now different people? Have they brought their own people in? So you, you quite often, through an election cycle, will have to reset a lot of the conversations you've had on bringing projects through or, or continuing the operations. And these are such critical assets in country mm. that the government are very focused on you ensuring that you deliver very high availability of power, uh, you know, particularly through, you know, we've had times, you know, the African Cup of Nations is on, so we've really got to make sure the plant can run to maintain electricity. You have election periods where you want to make sure you're not, you know, disturbing anything in, in that space. So you're trying to be very much a, an independent, high quality producer of electricity for the country and, 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 you know, navigate some of those areas as other parts of the country may be having different challenges or moving through different economic cycles through that time. So. I what think what we're talking about now, but it's a lot through where a lot of those challenges come through. Well, and a lot more risk than doing QCLNG as an example in Africa. So, which is absolutely fascinating. Does that mean, like, with the fifty countries in Africa, that they actually have targets for net zero? I'm like, do they have a they have a strategy in place, or do, is it a continent or country by country? It's, it's country by country, and, and so each of them have their own journey, and it depends where they are on, on, that, uh, on that cycle. So you may have somewhere like South Africa, which is particularly challenged on its electricity supply at the moment. It's got a lot of legacy coal plants. They are very high employers in countries, so it's a critical way that South Africa can successfully transition over the coming years from coal to other areas, but also maintain employment and sustainability in some of those locations and communities, which are highly dependent on the coal plants. Other places like Mozambique, as we touched on earlier, has got a very high resource on gas. So it says, well, how do I transition through using gas to build up my uh, infrastructure and network to then move on to onto, uh, solar and wind? As we touched, you know, this is where the geography becomes quite interesting. You've got the Rift Valley through the center of Africa. So there are certain countries Kenya, for example, where geothermal is a great resource they've got, which in essence is uh, renewable. So, you know, these are 
you know, mm. all the uh, steam which is coming out from uh, very low below the ground. So you you know take the steam out and you put it through a steam turbine. So in effect, it's a a, a renewable power source. And Bali, geography wise, has that. Similarly, wind projects are driven, uh, and certain countries can move to those projects on the migration of birds. So if you think sort of from South Africa up to Europe, it's predominantly the eastern side of Africa which are bird migrations, because that's where the best wind is. So you have countries which will lean more towards wind projects because they've just got a better resource for that uh, in their location. So their net zero journey can leverage leverage that piece. You, you have to design the wind turbine yeah. layout carefully so you don't hit the migration line, which is a separate conversation yeah. with wind farms. But, you know, you have to, each, each country has a different ability to move to net zero depending on where they are now, what resources they have, and, and, and how fast they can effectively move economically as well. So, I mean, if you look at Africa as a whole, is it mostly still coal power generated? Yeah, it's a good question on split. I think it depends, it, it depends on really the country. I think you've got very heavy inputs of coal in South Africa still, and Southern Africa, so the, the countries around South Africa, are on a connected grid. So the other thing to bear in mind, there's no connected electricity grid across the whole of Africa. Certain countries aren't connected to others. You might have a neighbor you're connected to, but there's no sort of you know, sophisticated trading structure which allows people to trade electricity between places. There's, there's some elements in place, but very, very little. So it sort of really depends on the resource people have in their country to use it. So you have got heavy coal usage in Southern Africa, but you do have gas elsewhere. So Nigeria obviously is heavy on oil and gas. From its uh, its experience on that side, and sort of Western Africa's got pieces there. Uh, Tanzania has got sort of you know strong gas reserves to to try and expand on. So, whereas other countries, you know, somewhere like Egypt uh, and Morocco further north, very strong renewables and solar capability because of where they are and their you know the irradiation they can uh, they can achieve on uh, their solar plants they can build. So they're much more advanced down the journey of solar power and 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 wind indeed as well. So there each of them is unique in their part but certainly the push is very much unless they've got sort of you know core resources they want to use is into renewables the you know you can see the cost of building a solar plant particularly versus wind maybe you know the the, the cost of that construction is really coming down it has been coming down year on year i think at the moment you know with some of the supply chain problems it's not necessarily going down as quickly as it has been but what happens is the cheaper your plants built then the capex is lower and therefore the tariff ultimately to the end user is lower and mm. so that's where solar has really become competitive as panel prices has come down they're pretty straightforward to build yes you take land but not all land is used for agriculture so i think you've got this balance of leveraging land which is not used for agriculture but you can use for solar and that cheaper pricing then translates itself into a lower tariff so if you're a state or a uh, government providing electricity to to the to your population, you really you know the lowest tariff you can get means you can actually provide electricity at the lower lowest price possible, as well as then you know it enables the local population to be able to pay that bill, and so you have less yeah. you know rears and you can actually you know receive the income in and 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 push that up through the chain and then grow and, and develop the electricity supply. So certainly, solar is sort of that cheapest space. Wind is very exciting, but turbines have become quite costly. Over the last mm. few years, and you've seen that from some of the financial results of, of the big wind players, you know, GE, Vestas, et cetera. And um, so there's a bit of a journey on wind, but they are obviously very effective in terms of footprint and, and return you make on a, on a single turbine. Geothermal is this 
you know, yeah. area which countries have got flexibility to to use existing technology to move through, and then and then the gas, and and then certain countries, and we are very aware of as well as as you put in a gas plant, does that ultimately, of course, become the type of turbine you can convert to hydrogen? So yeah, I was going to ask you about that hydrogen plays because. You know, I, I've done a podcast with HDF Energy and they were talking about, which was oblivious to me, that, you know, a lot of the islands are on diesel and coal, which which for some unknown reason, I, I don't know why I thought gas was going to be delivered in bottles to, to an island, but how does the hydrogen, like it's such a topical subject, although I would say after talking to the... CSIRO's hydrogen mission leader, not economical at the moment. Anyway, how does hydrogen and offshore wind play into Africa? If we take hydrogen first, I think, yeah, it's, a, it's at the nascent stage of how can we make hydrogen work? And you see, you know, there's hundreds of projects around the world now trying to see how we, how we can move that forward. From our side, obviously, we've got great expertise in building uh, the renewable aspect of that. So this is about, you know, how do you get the green hydrogen side? So, you know, building solar, using wind and dovetailing that with, you know, either ammonia production or desalination or, you know, other, other you know, combined industries with, with hydrogen. And so for us, we are, you know, good at that, good at that renewable piece, but we're good at putting these chains together. So we are great at connecting other players who can then also, you know, join with us in that entire value chain. So, we wouldn't necessarily be building these are multi multi billion dollar projects, yeah. and so you need the big players to take those through, or a consortium to to try and move those forward. So we're we're looking very carefully at those, and certainly looking at how do we future proof to the extent we can future projects we build, particularly in the gas space, because of course you know gas turbines can you move to hydrogen fuel for those turbines. So we we're very much looking at that both in the green hydrogen, but also the convertibility that way where you may have it in in gas plants. So. That's when you've had a lot of conversations on hydrogen. So we're, we're sort of in that journey with others, uh, trying to play in the space where best fitted to do so in the context of Africa. And Africa's obviously got some great natural resource locations, but you think of Egypt in terms of what it can do on renewables, Namibia, some of these other areas. So there's some great locations which that could be produced. And we're obviously trying to play in that space where, where it makes sense for us to, to do so. So that's on, the, that's on the hydrogen side. And the other one on... Offshore, so it's interesting. You know, Africa is Africa's a big place, and there's a lot of land. And if you think of the cost of cost of practically building offshore wind versus onshore wind, uh, at this point in time, we certainly don't play in the offshore wind space in Africa. At this point, you've got a lot of logistics and you know cost challenges of building these yeah. you know really large, uh, either floating or fixed uh, offshore sites. I know Southern Africa or South Africa has, you know starts to have some areas which may be designated for that. But again, there's so much land which is available for that and the connectivity to existing transmission networks yeah. and sites really means, I think, at this point, offshores deprioritized, whereas maybe you're in, you know, I mean, the UK here, we have a lot of offshore wind. Wind strength is a lot stronger. And also you've got, you know, less land to allocate out to onshore, uh, onshore yeah. wind farms. It's less at the moment, but again, also the, you know, the wind turbines onshore are gradually increasing in size as well and and, uh, and power. So I think that's the journey practically at the moment for Africa, but, it, you know, it may get to the, the offshore eventually. I'm interested to know, like with South Africa and their coal-fired power stations, 
they they produce coal too, don't they? I, I remember Rio Tinto had power yeah, boards yeah. down there as yeah, well. Yeah. But, I mean, do they have gas production? I mean, is every country like you play to the strengths of the country? But do do they have gas in South Africa? I'm not I'm not sure. Yeah, I think coal is their primary resource, and then they do have gas as well. So you know, really, they've built up ESCOM, who are the the state energy provider in uh, in Africa or in South Africa. They've got a lot of legacy coal plants, which is where really they, you know, a lot of their electricity has been supplied from. Probably, yeah. so I think it was even 10 years ago, South Africa was probably the leading country in Africa where they started to move to bid rounds on bidding for renewable power. So they started the process which said, look, we need, we know we want to transition. We want to build out our renewable capabilities. They've got, you know, fantastic sites and, and irradiation again for solar and, and wind. And so they've been doing these bid rounds sort of off and on for the last 10 years to build out as much renewable capacity as, as possible. But I think they've just they've just got this inflection over the last few years where they've not managed to keep up with the growth and demand of electricity yeah. as natural coal plants come to the end of their end of their lifespan. So South Africa particularly is suffering from a lot of you know blackouts and, and it's challenged. I'm sure you see it, you know, even you know on the news in Australia the difficulties they've got of sort of trying to maintain the, the level of energy supply they really need. So there's a big push in South Africa to try and, you know, bring on more renewables power uh, as quickly as as quickly as possible. And then also at least South Africa is connected to its neighbouring countries, Mozambique, Namibia, et cetera. So there is some connectivity of of distribution networks which can help, or transmission networks yeah. which can help South Africa. But they've they've got this, it's classic, we've got a very strong legacy position in coal, mainly for Australia, et cetera. You know, you, you sort of want to use your resource you have through before you then migrate from there, because otherwise that'll, you know, it'll, it'll end up as a stranded resource you've got in there. So they're they're on that journey of, of migration, but it it is particularly challenging and sensitive for South Africa because of this high employment and certain communities which are are built around coal plants. So you know, if the coal plant closes, what happens to the community? What happens to the town? What happens to employment? So I think. That particularly for South Africa, uh, quite a challenge they've got on that transition away from coal. And they have got some gas and they're looking at some other gas plants yeah. um, and sort of maybe LNG import terminals because you've got, if you think, Mozambique around the corner. So they do look in that and gas, I think, will clearly form part of their transition, but they are very well advanced on a lot of renewables capability in South Africa. But the last point to add there perhaps is as, as you transition, to sort of a lot of the solars, what do you do with your base? You know, how do you provide your base electricity? And I'm sure you've had, you know, the conversations yeah. many times, the uh, interruptibility. It's a great combination. Wind doesn't just go through the day, you know, so you have wind at night, but then solars is, has its peak timings. And a lot of where the other piece of technology we haven't perhaps touched on is, uh, and South Australia's got a couple of great examples, is bringing in large battery storage. Yeah. So where you think of, you know, how do you, batteries are a fantastic, you know, large battery sets are a fantastic tool which can help stabilize your grid, bridge, you know, that 6 till 7 p.m. period on a solar plant where everybody's, you know, putting the kettle on watching TV. So how do you bridge the time, perhaps bring on peak load if there's a critical need during the day. So, you know, batteries have a multi-use and a multi-capability on a grid. And so I think that's another area which certainly in Africa is, where they haven't got maybe the most stable grids, it's a really great add to help the capability and, and enhance what you already get from your existing uh, power plants. Yeah. 
think the key is not to turn off your coal too soon. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I just think in Australia with the, with that base load, and I, I'm not really sure I 100% understand why the noise on gas is so fierce. I, I, I'm not sure I get that. In Australia, we are lucky, I think, on so many levels with critical minerals, gas, we don't produce that much oil. People keep focusing on the oil, but we really don't produce that much liquids. And, you know, you, as you said, if you don't have a base load, basically you'll have blackouts. And that is not a space that you want to be in. It just seems to be sometimes the strategy, what is the cost you are prepared to pay for the speed for which you, you want to get there? And if you want to pay higher electricity prices, yeah, sure, take the shortest route. But it's it's not easy and it's very complicated. So, yeah, it's an interesting subject. I don't know that Australia has done it particularly well. It's good to have a lot of renewables in South Australia, but there was a report that just came out that South Australia is the highest electricity pricing in the world and Denmark's number two. And I think Denmark's quite a lot of renewables, right? So there's something to be said about that, but as people whinge about their electricity prices. So what, what do you think about net zero? What's your position on, on that? I mean, we have some comments that come back from people that say that climate change is bullshit and, you know, what are they talking about? Coal's number one. I mean, it's just fascinating with some of the commentary. I love it. I love reading it. And some of their names are just absurd. But what, what what's your view on net zero? Yeah, so in my personal view, you know, we are in climate change. I think people will argue and disagree on the degree of that climate change, but moving to sources which are more renewable, I think in a sensible and structured way, and it's back to your planning of having a long-term plan and making that migration, I think makes sense if we can use resources more effectively to use use our sort of natural resources for other more productive uh, areas, then you know I'm, I'm on board with that. I think we just have to yeah. do it at a, at a pace which makes sense and we can, and it can move through. And I think each of us have you know, our own ability to move to those. You know, I'm, I'm sitting here in the UK and, you know, it's a pretty warm October versus what you'd normally expect, uh, whatever normal is now, of course, in, uh, in in the UK. But, you know, for myself, I've got my solar panels on my roof now with my little battery pack in, uh, in, in the garage. And, and that's been a, you know, really great way of complementing what I take from the grid. And we have, you know, fantastic stable electricity yeah. in the UK, but it's just a way of saying, well, that's, that's a great way I can try and you know contribute to to some of the uh, some of those pieces there, and it's great for me that I offset some of my own electricity bill. So I think for me, it's a it's a good journey to go through. You know, net zero by 2050. It's you know it's 25 years plus away. We need to start. You know, each of those is a step forward to try and try and move that move that way. So, you know, how can I help that from where I work and what I do? How can I do it in my own personal life? But that's certainly for me. I think. We need to go on the journey. We've just got to get the right the right pace and continue the pace versus stop starts. And I think, particularly if you look at a business context, having good long term structured planning is so important to that because projects don't happen. You know, you don't decommission coal plants in Australia within a year. You need plans. You need to build new plants. They all take years to put in place. So having a long term plan and trying to work to it, I think, would be helpful for for many countries around the world. I think not just not just in Africa. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in the, in the UK in particular, it seems that a lot of these things are legislated. You know, waste to energy is legislated. Someone was telling me the other day about the. I'm gonna th- I'm gonna word this incorrectly, but the emissions. It's a, an emissions fee if you've got a vehicle that's over a certain age. It's twelve pounds fifty a day, which hasn't necessarily stopped people from driving it oh, from getting on public hasn't encouraged people to go on to public transport so they just drive their cars because they have to pay for it anyway it's a lot of money a day to be paying i i mean this part of i think is that learning about africa or uk or whatever is is you know australia's it's can learn a lot from these countries as what to do and what not to do just because we seem to be reacting in a in an unusual way but that one in particular that sort of fee was really interesting because then I thought well generally people that drive really really old cars uh can't afford to buy Teslas so mm. now you're just penalizing them so every country has these little things that are going on it's it's fascinating stuff in your view with the whole of net zero do you think the governments africa uk are doing enough it's a tough question because it's back to this long-term planning and every government goes through an election cycle so we all go you know all the countries we see you know you go through this cycle of three or four years time and then say well okay i want to just you know shave that off there or our view is to, to to pivot to another area so i think one of the challenges is trying to get a long-term plan, which has got, a, I guess, enough consensus that you can get through the election cycle, that you can maintain that route forwards. And, and so, you know, politics and then long-term planning are not necessarily two things you'd say uh, in the same sentence to, to try yeah. and move those forwards. But you've got to keep moving each of, those, each of those steps forward. And, you know, your point on the UK, you know, it originally started, take the London one, I think uh, the ULEZ, uh, fee is what you're talking about. They originally started as a congestion. So there's a separate one, which is a congestion charge, which is about sort of driving into the central and now it's about emissions in a, in a wider area. But you have to have a, a joined up thought process to that because you have, you know, tradies or otherwise who, you know, need to step in and out with their vans to, to, to work and, you know, provide the services people expect uh, in their houses or their doorsteps. But similarly, where's the connection to public transport that you can then have the investment that people are incentivized to 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 use public transport and it's efficient and and, and through that certainly that public transport conversation has been very challenged because of post-covid we're both sitting here you know having a great uh, zoom conversation we could have been in an office on another day pre-covid and so this different dynamic of who who and when you go into the office also i think impacts some of how you build that joined up uh, joined up thinking with with emissions, transport, et cetera. So they're all they're all connected, but trying to move that forward, I think we do need to take those steps and you just build on them, build on them going forward, I think. So in in summary, what is Global X next 12 months look like? What you know, you've got a couple of projects under construction. What what does it look like for the next 12 months? Well we have we have a great, uh, great and challenging pipeline of projects which we're looking to to close in the in the coming months and they're in quite a few of our sort of existing countries and so bringing those through getting those into construction so it's as always it's move the pipeline through 
take those projects to close to final investment decision, bring those forwards, and then refill, refill the hopper again. And I think also on some of the, we don't forget, you know, we've got to maintain, you know, good production from our existing air plants. A lot of countries depend on those, and, and that's a you know it's an important footprint we we don't lose sight of when we're still trying to pursue the the, the new project. So it's growth, new projects, new uh, new electricity supply for Africa. Yeah, it's it's fantastic. Thank you so much, Ian, for doing this podcast. It's nice to reconnect as we did in London as well. But to to hear this story, I think it's fascinating. It really, really is. So thank you so much for doing the podcast. Tough talk. Well, thank you. And thank you, Jodie, for letting me talk yeah, so much about myself and, and what I do each day, which has been uh, fantastic, a privilege. Come Thanks on. very much. You're a bloke. It comes naturally. <laughs> Trust me. I, I've been around it all my life, Ian. All right. Thank you.